0: This podcast is available through the generous support of Wolf Tory Medical, maker of products to measure intra-abdominal pressure and monitor intra-abdominal hypertension. To learn more, visit their website at www.wolfetory.com or contact them toll-free at 888-380-9808. Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. For copyright and disclaimers, as well as information about how to contact the iCritical Care staff, please listen to the notice at the end of this
1: podcast. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. Joining us today is Dr. Michael Cheatham, MD FACS. FCCM. He is currently director of the Surgical and Trauma Intensive Care Units, Department of Surgical Education, Orlando Regional Medical Center. He is a professor of surgery at the University of Central Florida School of Medicine, and he's currently president of the World Society of the Abdominal Compartment Syndrome. Dr. Cheatham has joined us previously, uh, now four years ago, uh, on the iCritical Critical Care podcast, talking about intraabdominal hypertension and the abdominal compartment syndrome and when uh, dr cheatham had another article that came out in critical care medicine earlier this year i was hopeful that uh, he would uh, consider having an interview with us again to give a 2010 update on intraabdominal hypertension and he has done so the title of that article is is the evolving management of intraabdominal hypertension and abdominal compartment syndrome improving survival the reference is critical care medicine 2010 volume 38 number 2 pages 402 2407. Thank you so much again, Dr. Cheatham, for being with us.
2: Well, it's great to be with you. I appreciate the opportunity to be back.
1: Um, again, as we were speaking before, uh, this is a topic that uh, I've tried to stay very much up to speed on, and it's very important. It can be very devastating if it's not picked up early. And the focus of this particular manuscript was that you looked at, at your patients and how as the field of management of intraabdominal hypertension was changing, your interventions were changing, and your point was to see if those interventions were associated with better outcomes. And I thought I'd let you begin just to teach perhaps fellows or residents that are listening some of the basics of the, of the terms, the vocabulary, and uh, I thought I'd let you take it from there.
2: Well, well certainly. Uh, it, things have definitely changed. Uh, over the last decade with regard to what we understand about intra hypertension as well as abdominal compartment syndrome. And I think we're continuing to learn quite a bit, and our, all of our management practices uh, are constantly changing. We have uh, followed every open abdomen uh, in our ICU uh, since 1995 in a, in a database, and this particular study was uh, our attempt beginning uh, in 2002 to prospectively follow these and compare how we were resuscitating patients to see if it made a difference. Just as background, uh, intra-abdominal pressure is just the pressure within the abdominal cavity by definition. Uh, And we basically define an intra-abdominal pressure of greater than or equal to 12 millimeters of mercury as being what we call intra-abdominal hypertension. We know that our normal intra-abdominal pressure is... Uh, zero or perhaps even slightly negative, but in the critically ill patient, intra-abdominal pressure increases uh, and is commonly in the 5 to 7 millimeter of mercury range. As critical illness worsens, intra-abdominal pressure can increase, sometimes to very high levels, uh, and we know that if an intra-abdominal pressure increases to greater than 15 millimeters of mercury, uh, the patient can start to show signs of organ dysfunction and even failure. If the patient develops an intra-abdominal pressure of greater than 20 millimeters of mercury and and the patient is showing signs of new organ dysfunction or failure, that would be consistent with the diagnosis of abdominal compartment syndrome, uh, which uh, in several studies has had a mortality of upwards of 100% if unrecognized. So abdominal compartment syndrome is something we definitely want to avoid. There are three types of abdominal compartment syndrome, primary abdominal compartment syndrome, Uh, is the one that most people think about with regard to trauma or surgery. It's due to some condition in the abdomen. Secondary abdominal compartment syndrome is more common in medical patients. It's more commonly due to sepsis and significant third space edema. And then there's what we call recurrent abdominal compartment syndrome, which is basically where the patient has had a second hit phenomenon. And the patient's abdominal compartment syndrome recurs after initial treatment of either primary or secondary abdominal compartment syndrome.
1: So let me follow that up with two, uh, two questions that are very closely linked to what you just said. One of the questions that comes up in, in my unit and other units I've worked in is, well, well, who should we check it on? And my understanding reading peop- the literature from people like yourself is uh, many people are recommending it now on everyone because you just you can't tell, and I'd like you to talk about that. And the other is how often, if you could, if you could take a few minutes on that.
2: Certainly. The risk factors for intra-abdominal hypertension and abdominal compartment syndrome uh, are multiple. It can occur in a wide variety of patient populations. It's not just a disease of the trauma patient, as was uh, previously thought, but uh, generally patients that require mechanical ventilation, patients that are septic, uh, patients who require a fluid resuscitation of more than five liters uh, in a 24-hour period, uh, patients that are already showing signs of multiple system organ dysfunction or failure, uh, pre- patients who have recently undergone a laparotomy, these are all risk factors uh, for uh, that have been found in, in multivariate analyses to be uh, significantly predictive of the development of abdominal compartment syndrome. To identify the presence of intraabdominal hypertension and abdominal compartment syndrome, we have to measure intraabdominal pressure. Clinical examination is notoriously poor. We're really just feeling the subcutaneous tissues. We're not really feeling the fascia. Uh, And the best way to determine uh, the patient's intra-abdominal pressure is likely measuring uh, the intravesicular or bladder pressure. Uh, Approximately 92% of uh, the world is doing it in that fashion. It's simple, uh, it's inexpensive, it's reliable, and it's safe.
1: And your recommendations are, uh, at least the most recent ones I read, it was was 25 cc's of... uh... A fluid, uh, and you measure it. Uh, wh- where are you recommending that we that we level it at this point?
2: Correct. The the current maximum installation installation volume would be twenty five uh, milliliters of saline or less. Some studies have shown that it just it takes fewer than a few CCs uh, to be able to do this. Uh, it's basically just enough to create a, a conductive column, uh, and we measure uh, intra abdominal pressures every four hours uh, in our ICU. Uh, The best place to level the transducer is at the mid-axillary line, at the level of the iliac crest, and we do these measurements in the supine position. Uh, Some people uh, are concerned about laying your patient supine. Uh, We have done studies that have shown that just for laying the patient supine for the minute it takes to take a measurement, uh, there is uh, no increased risk of aspiration. We've never had a single patient aspirate during that practice. The reason that we measure supine is, because all of these threshold uh, definitions were determined based on data from years ago when we left patients supine. Now it's more common to leave the patient with the head of the bed elevated uh, for ventilator-associated pneumonia prevention. The, uh, but that does potentially increase the intraabdominal pressure slightly.
1: Um, and again, and and I'm re-asking the question, but it seems that, for example, in a in a surgical ICU, it would not be. Uh, silly to consider checking it routinely and that there would be patients where you would be surprised and might catch it. And my understanding is at even some trauma centers, even in, like I take care of a lot of patients with subarachnoid hemorrhage, even in those patients, it would be important. And I know that they will often do a decompressive laparotomy to uh, decrease ICP. Can you, can you talk about who, who you think uh, should be? Is it everyone? Do you recommend that yet?
2: We, we don't measure intra-abdominal pressure on everyone there wouldn't be any downside. There is no increased risk of UTI uh, with this. We've shown that in a study of several thousand patients. Uh, We generally look at the risk factors and if we, uh, a good rule of thumb is if you think about measuring a bladder pressure in a patient, you probably ought to do it. Okay. Um, There's really no downside to it, Uh, but in any of the patients that meet those risk factors that I mentioned earlier, we would measure intra-abdominal pressure uh, as you've already alluded to, you'd be surprised how often you find the uh, intra pressure is higher than you had expected. Um, it is a very common cause for low urinary output. So, for example, if I have a patient who uh, starts to drop their urinary output, does not respond as I would expect to fluid resuscitation, all measure an intraabdominal pressure to make sure that they don't have intraabdominal hypertension.
1: Well and 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 you mentioned it casually, but the two things that I, I have stood in public forums and, and re mentioned is one that just because the belly's open doesn't mean you shouldn't be checking it. And and there are many people who when I say that I am given a, a second look. And I, I think it's a very, very important point if you want to mention. And the other is I never had surgery. I'm 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 sta- I'm doing a shift in the medical ICU and, and think about it. And so uh, if you want to talk about that.
2: Well, you're absolutely correct. There, There's an old wives' tale uh, out there that gets propagated, and I'm not quite sure how it started, that once the abdomen is open, the pressure in the abdomen drops to zero. And that could not be further from the truth. Uh, you can have a completely open abdomen uh, with significant evisceration of, of the viscera and still have High intraabdominal pressures
1: and and what you taught me on on one of these other discussions was there there' some of the highest risk patients right
2: ab absolutely absolutely
1: um, so I just think it's hopefully we can use forums like this to help get the word out that that when you're going through a residency and so okay, the abdomen's open, we don't have to worry about that. Uh, one might say it's exactly the opposite. Uh,
2: uh, the patient who requires their abdomen to be open is already at higher risk of organ, uh, organ failure and uh, uh, dysfunction, and, and those are patients that we are even more careful about following their intraabdominal pressure.
1: So to focus now on your current manuscript, um, uh, as I mentioned before, you looked at prospectively everyone with an open abdomen, and maybe before I ask you some other questions, would you like to sort of introduce this uh, manuscript to the listeners?
2: Certainly. Uh, we have been uh, constantly reevaluating the way in which we manage the open abdomen uh, over the years. The, the first open abdomen I ever did was in 1992, and that was for an intra-abdominal pressure of seven, uh, 70 millimeters of mercury. That would be an unheard of uh, intra-abdominal pressure nowadays. But at that point, we, we really didn't understand the disease. Uh, nowadays, we would open for much lower levels, as as we'll get into uh, but it is this particular manuscript is basically uh, a prospective evaluation of two different time periods and how our uh, resuscitation during the first three years of the study uh, differed from the, th- the second th- uh, three years of the study and the significant improvements in survival that we saw as a result of adopting the World Society Guidelines.
1: Um, so if you'd like to expand upon that, what, what some of the changes were over time and how you designed the study.
2: Sure. Uh, as I mentioned, it, it is a prospective uh, study uh, that we uh, basically looked at every single patient that had an open abdomen and followed them uh, throughout their course. Uh, we do not, as a general rule, leave all abdomens open. Uh, as some centers have advocated, uh, we typically do somewhere around uh, 80 to 100 open abdomens a year. Uh, we admit uh, probably about 1,600, 1,800 patients to our surgical trauma ICUs a year. So we're talking about uh, perhaps 5 to 7% uh, of our patients uh, admitted to the ICU will have an open abdomen. Uh, in the first three years of the study, uh, we used a fairly uh, traditional resuscitation method, primarily crystalloid-based, Uh, we followed intra-abdominal pressures in patients that we were concerned about, but used those measurements really only to predict uh, the need for decompression. If we did open an abdomen, it was usually done emergently when the intra-abdominal pressures got up into the 30s or perhaps even the low 40s, very high pressures. Uh, And uh, we tended to leave the abdomen open for quite a bit of time, uh, and only after the patient was showing a significant improvement in their illness would we begin attempts to close the abdomen. In uh, late 2004, the World Society of the Abdominal Compartment Syndrome had uh, a consensus conference where we basically looked at the world's literature and in an evidence-based medicine fashion put together an algorithm for the resuscitation of patients with intra hypertension and abdominal compartment syndrome. So uh, in early 2005, we adopted that algorithm. Basically, uh, we shifted to more of a balanced resuscitation using uh, judicious crystalloid, more colloids and blood, uh, and then the use of vasoactive medications, primarily norepinephrine, uh, to raise uh, perfusion in the abdomen as needed. We focused more on a variety of medical management strategies, uh, things uh, such as nasogastric decompression, colonic decompression, uh, fluid resuscitation. Perhaps even pharmacologic paralysis to help reduce intraabdominal pressure. Uh, perhaps using uh, judicious diuresis uh, and uh, hemofiltration, a number of things that we had not done previously. We also followed intraabdominal pressures serially every four hours, so we were using the intraabdominal pressure to guide our therapy and make sure that we were maintaining adequate perfusion of the abdomen based on what is called the abdominal perfusion pressure, which is mean arterial pressure minus intra-abdominal pressure, and we strove to keep that above 60 millimeters of mercury. We also were more likely to open the abdomens earlier rather than waiting until full-blown abdominal compartment syndrome was present, typically decompressing for patients that had an intra-abdominal pressure around 25 millimeters of mercury. And then finally, we were much more aggressive at getting these abdomens closed earlier uh, and perhaps even beginning the process of closing the abdomen five uh, days after opening, rather than waiting perhaps uh, a few weeks.
1: And so just to thank you, that was terrific. Um, and so just to help summarize for the listeners, and, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but but your some of your big conclusions from this, and then we'll talk about more of the details, was that your um, your primary fascial closure, uh, rate of closure and and this is your table five I guess increased from fifty from about sixty percent to about eighty percent from two thousand two to two thousand seven, and that your survival to hospital discharge increased by twenty eight percent from fifty percent to seventy I guess seventy two percent this is survival to hospital discharge, and the the issue here was that when you did this. Multivariate predictors of survival. You you found that having the abdominal compartment syndrome was negatively associated with survival, therefore associated with death. I, I have it here as uh, as your .18, and that having a prophylactic open abdomen was uh, had an odds ratio, adjusted odds ratio of 3.23 associated with survival. And so uh, again, as I'm thinking, talking with you because as I was discussing with you before, one of my big conundrums reading about this was how do you integrate in the the medical management portion of portion of this, I guess your answer might be it's it's very important, but those aren't the patients we looked at in this study, right?
2: Um, well, I, I think it does include those patients. Okay. Um, what we what we found was that we weren't opening any more abdomens than we used to, and in fact, the number of, of abdomens that we're opening has decreased uh, over the years. But we've seen an improvement in survival, and and so we actually uh, ourselves sat there and were a bit puzzled by that because the traditional thought has been, well, if you open more abdomens and leave all abdomens open, your survival will increase. There's no question that leaving an abdomen open has a certain morbidity and mortality associated with it. I think what we identified was we're opening the same number of abdomens, but we're opening them earlier. We're not waiting until our backs are against a wall, and it's a matter of we either open the abdomen or the patient arrests. We're opening earlier before the patient starts developing organ failure and and gets to the point of full-blown ACS. And with the use of the medical management strategies uh, that we uh, have outlined in in this and other publications, uh, we are able to prevent, uh, I think, many people from having to have their abdomen open, Uh, we try and prevent the edema uh, and the organ failure that is going to lead to abdominal compartment syndrome. So as you uh, pointed out, uh, leaving the abdomen open earlier uh, when you were concerned for the development of abdominal compartment syndrome uh, was associated with a greater than threefold increase in survival.
1: Um, So two points, again, just for the listeners. So um... Uh, on on your table four, your open abdomen utilization by percent, that's what you were referring to before, where it says in 2002, it was 8.8%. And then it went as high as 15% in 2004. And then by the end of the study in 2007, it was 7.4%. So that's the point that you were making about that the likelihood of opening the abdomen hasn't really changed uh, all that much. Is that correct?
2: Uh, Correct. We we really don't uh, leave uh, any more abdomens open uh, than we used to
1: but the so you're saying that the surgeon should have a lower threshold or try to get the abdomen open earlier but how do you reconcile that with somebody like me saying I don't need my surgeon to open it right away because I can try and do nasogastric decompression or rectal decompression or diuresis and things like that
2: well i i think it it is a a continuum of of interventions okay traditionally um back in the late 90s uh, early part of this decade everyone basically treated abdominal compartment syndrome with with uh, with a hammer. They basically used a scalpel to open the abdomen and they ignored everything up to that point. What we now have recognized and for the listeners on our on our website, we have a, a algorithm, a stepwise algorithm of various stages of management where opening the abdomen is the last stage and that is basically uh, relegated to patients that have failed everything else short of that. And so we have a number of medical management uh, strategies, which we can all do, uh, from the moment the patient comes into the ICU to help prevent uh, the patient from ever getting to the point where they have to have an open abdomen. So it's it's a matter of medical management, appropriate resuscitation early on to help prevent the development of uh, intra-abdominal hypertension. And in those patients where the medical management strategies are not enough, then opening the abdomen earlier than we did traditionally, so that they don't get as sick and therefore they get closed earlier and are able to go home at a, at a faster rate.
1: Okay, so I, I I think I got it. So so these patients deserve an early aggressive medical attempt at an approach to their therapy, but the the team with a surgeon needs to be there. And if it isn't clearly getting better quickly, the intervention uh, surgical should should be considered early earlier, right?
2: because it's the earlier surgical intervention that's associated with with improved survival. Uh, So we can avoid an open abdomen, I think, in many patients, and and this is going to require time uh, as more people adopt this strategy to show, but I think by using these medical strategies up front, patients will develop less intra-abdominal hypertension, but in those that do get into trouble, the surgeons need to be prepared to open earlier than they did in the past.
1: I'd like to spend uh, the next few minutes talking about some closure issues because it sounds like you've really um, that the paradigm has has uh, it looks like it's changed for the betterment of patient care over the last few years. And I'm just going to start uh, try and encapsulate it myself and let you take it from there. But it sounds like your 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 mean days to abdominal closure were decreased by almost fifty percent, by twenty down to ten. Your median days from twenty down to six. Uh, your rate of enteroatmospheric fistulas went down from 86 down to 3.6%. And I, I think some of the technical issues are the, the the primary fascial closure rate went up from 60 to 81%. And so maybe if you could talk a little bit about uh, all of that, that would be great. Sure. Uh,
2: beginning, uh, as I said, at about the same time in 2005, uh, we, uh, as you've already alluded to, our, our Biggest year, if you will, was 2004, where 15 percent uh, of uh, the patients ended up with an open abdomen. And uh, my partners and I kind of looked at each other, and we kind of said, "What are we doing? Uh, we have all these open abdomens um, that we now have to try and close." And so we we changed our strategy a little bit, and we basically, as we saw, well, as we resuscitated people better, and as we saw less visceral edema. Uh, we found that we were actually able to try and start closing earlier. And so uh, in 2005, we basically said, look, let's see how far we can go with this. And instead of uh, basically committing every open abdomen to being skin grafted, as uh, some institutions uh, will do, uh, the minute you open the abdomen, you basically just plan on a skin graft. Uh, We said, let's try and get their abdomen closed so that we don't have to bring them back a year later remove the skin graft and repair the hernia. So beginning about uh, three to five days out now, after the abdomen is open, we will take them back and during our our routine explorations of the abdomen, we'll try and start bringing the fascia back together. Uh, And... Uh, with uh, what we call a progressive abdominal closure, as well as some of the newer negative pressure wound therapy techniques, uh, we start bringing the fascia back together early on. And as you've alluded to, we have been able to significantly decrease uh, the number of days that these abdomens remain open. Uh, Our skin graft uh, percentage uh, went down to 3%. Uh, by uh, the end, the final year of the study, and I think I have skin grafted two patients in the last uh, two years.
1: And so, for years. the for the non surgeon in the audience, can you explain the technical implications of that?
2: Sure. Uh, as I said, traditionally, uh, many people felt that once you open the abdomen, the only way to manage that, and when these patients have significant visceral edema, uh, it, it's basically a foregone conclusion. You'll never get the abdomen closed. Uh, as we would normally, and so we take a skin graft and we lay the skin graft on top of the viscera uh, in order to protect it. Uh, The patient then has a massive abdominal wall hernia uh, that needs to be repaired at some point. It takes about a year for that skin graft to mature and separate from the viscera so that we can then go back to the operating room, remove the skin graft, uh, and then using various meshes and the like, try and close the hernia. Uh, skin grafting of the abdomen is associated with the the highest resource utilization, the highest hospital cost, uh, and the highest intra-atmospheric uh, fistula rate. Uh, so what I'm preaching, if you will, nowadays uh, is skin graft is a last resort because it is the most morbid way to manage these abdomens. Uh, we, as you've said, uh, have been able to get about 85% of our open abdomens closed primarily uh, by their initial discharge from the hospital. Uh, there are a number of centers in Europe that are up in the 80s to even 90% range.
1: And so when you close them, and, and just because I find this incredibly fascinating, so when you close them primarily, does that mean that you, you used a mesh and that by the time they leave the hospital they don't have a mesh or the mesh is there and it's closed anyway? Or? Uh,
2: um, well, by mesh, um, many people refer to putting uh, sewing an absorbable mesh Uh, into uh, the the defect in the fascia. We uh, stopped doing that probably half a dozen years ago. Um, What I'm referring to is actually getting the patient's fascia closed to fascia. Uh, So primary fascial closure, uh, just as if the patient had just had an elective laparotomy and now has a a midline incision. Uh, So fascia to fascia closure so that there is no hernia.
1: And you try to do that... Sort of, uh, uh, is there a particular time you wait a, a week or so, or, or h- how, how do you gauge when they're ready for that?
2: Every patient is different. Uh, there are some patients, uh, such as those uh, with, say, a ruptured abdominal aortic aneurysm or uh, a gunshot wound of the inferior vena cava, uh, severe pancreatitis, they develop such severe retroperitoneal edema and hemorrhage uh, that trying to get that patient closed is not going to happen. Uh, because of the loss of abdominal domain, but the vast majority of patients who require an open abdomen for their acute critical illness, if resuscitated appropriately, were able to get them closed fascia to fascia by five to seven days, uh, and then they go home without a hernia. We typically will start trying to close their abdomen uh, perhaps three to five days uh, after their initial uh, decompression.
1: Um, and then just a couple points, and then I want to read some of your concluding points from the article because I thought they were very well well said. Your table six has these univariate predictors of survival, and I thought that you could make a couple comments. You showed that in the survivors, there was an eighty four percent likelihood of having had a prophylactic open abdomen versus sixty three percent for non survivors. And, and I guess this is the other point you're alluding to is that if they had as an indication for uh, decompressive laparotomy uh, uh, abdominal compartment syndrome, it was 30% in the non-survivors and only 13% in the survivors. And so that's, I guess, why you're trying to, amongst the other reasons, to shift away from waiting until it's clear that they have full-blown abdominal compartment syndrome. Uh,
2: Absolutely. The fact is many of these patients are, are going to go on to develop abdominal compartment syndrome. I think the reluctance on the part of many surgeons is they don't like dealing with an open abdomen. They want to try and avoid it, but they'll use it if they're forced to. And I guess what we're saying is it's better to go ahead and just do it up front rather than when you're forced to do so because the patient's survival is is so much less. What we identified was that our indications for decompressing the abdomen in the first versus the second half of the study really were no different Uh, we opened the abdomens for the same indications as we had uh, in the first half of the study in the second half. The difference, though, was that we were no longer waiting for the the patient to develop abdominal compartment syndrome. When it was clear that the patient was going that direction, we just went ahead and opened earlier. That helps to avoid that period of time in which the case has malperfusion, uh, the patient is developing organ dysfunction and perhaps even failure that one now has to deal with. So it's better to preemptively strike, if you will, in the patient who looks like they're going to go on to develop ACS.
1: Um, and then let me just um, read, read uh, what, uh, one of your better sentences I thought in here, which was uh, on page um, 406. Given the stable patient population throughout the study and the finding that a prophylactic open abdomen is associated with a greater than threefold increase in survival from intraabdominal hypertension, abdominal compartment syndrome, We propose that a prophylactic open abdomen to avoid abdominal compartment syndrome rather than delayed emergent decompression once abdominal compartment syndrome has developed represents a key contributing factor to the significant improvement in survival recognized in this study. And I've just sort of restated what you said before. But, But again, I think combining that with your other important intro point was that of all of the patients who develop it, it is still the minority that require... Uh, surgical intervention, or maybe you could talk about that for just a little bit, just as a global issue.
2: No, I think you're absolutely correct. The the mantra, if you will, that, uh, that we're proposing uh, is if you open early, you'll be able to close early. Uh, and with regard to the medical management, there is uh, so much that can be done uh, to help avoid intra-abdominal hypertension uh, that, you know, the non-surgeon, Uh, can implement uh, that I think has been uh, neglected in years past, and I I firmly believe that elevated intra-abdominal pressure is likely a very key cause of multiple organ dysfunction and failure, and we know that uh, MODS has a very, very uh, high mortality. Uh, We know that uh, the majority of patients in the ICU who uh, succumb to their critical illness, it's due to organ failure, and so, it is uh, very easy to measure intraabdominal pressure, implement these medical management strategies, help reduce intraabdominal pressure, and thereby help reduce uh, the development of organ dif- uh, organ dysfunction and failure.
1: Well, Doctor Chatham, my, uh, my my last points, then again, just because it is such a terrific opportunity to speak with you, are so. This, to me, is sort of the epitome of where medically-trained surgical intensivists, medical intensivists, and surgical intensivists and surgeons all working together can really, you know, getting on the same page can really help patients. We have to think about the abdominal compartment syndrome, think about measuring bladder pressures and intra-abdominal pressures, um, uh, measure it frequently, uh, intervene, intervene early, intervene medically, And if you're deciding about intervening surgically, do it early and think about it in patients, not just the classic patient of, I just had a AAA repair and I had it, or I just had a trauma surgery. But think about it even if the belly's open and think about it even in the medical patient who's required significant resuscitation.
2: I would agree. The last few uh, clinical congresses, I've had the opportunity to sit at, at our World Society booth. And I can't tell you how many times I've had Uh, medical intensivists, pulmonologists, cardiologists, uh, even pediatric intensivists come up to me and say, I believe in it, but I don't measure uh, intra-abdominal pressure. And And I ask why, and they say, well, I can't do anything about it. My surgeons won't open the abdomen. And I guess the point that we're trying to make from the World Society standpoint is that there is so much that even uh, the non-surgical intensivist can do, in fact, probably more than the surgeon can do, uh, to reduce intra-abdominal pressure and avoid the open abdomen. And then, as you just said, the surgeons also have to to then work collaboratively. And if uh, the medical intensivist says, I've done everything I can, the patient's not responding, uh, the pressures are still going up, and the organ perfusion is failing, then the surgeon needs to say, well, I'm going to go ahead and open now, earlier than I might have in the past, uh, in order to avoid uh, contributing to the patient's illness.
1: Well, again, this has been a wonderful opportunity to speak with Dr. Michael L. Cheatham, MD, FACS, FCCM. He is currently a professor of surgery at the University of Central Florida School of Medicine and director of the surgical and trauma ICUs at Orlando Regional Trauma Center and president of the World Society of the Abdominal Compartment Syndrome. Uh, Thank you again so very much, doctor. No, thank you. This concludes another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Eye Critical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash eyecriticalcare for more information, as well as access to nearly five years of archived podcasts. For the Eye Critical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Richard Savell. This podcast
0: is available through the generous support of Wolf Tory Medical, maker of products to measure intra-abdominal pressure and monitor intra-abdominal hypertension. To learn more, visit their website at www.wolfetory.com or contact them toll-free at 888-380-9808. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Richard Savell, MD of CCM. Dr. Savell is the medical co director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Montefiore Medical Center in New York City, practicing under the leadership of Vladimir Cavetin, MD FCCM. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at or info at sccm dot org.